0: John chapter 1, and um, this morning we're going to conclude the first chapter. After seven weeks, one chapter down, only 20 chapters to go (laughs) through this verse-by-verse study. I've entitled the theme of these first two chapters, Jesus is here. He's made his arrival, he's shown up, he's on the scene, and now his ministry is beginning. We saw the first day of his ministry launch last week, As he came to John the Baptist, his cousin, and his cousin made a profound declaration about Jesus' nature, about who he is. And this whole first chapter has been introducing us to Jesus. We've come to know and see Jesus as the evangelist John is presenting him, as the creator of all that exists. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, We know that he is eternal. He has existed forever. We have also seen that this God of the universe who is created and who is sustaining all that exists took on human flesh, came to dwell among us, and John says, we beheld his glory. And then John the Baptist came on the scene. For two weeks, we looked at John the Baptist's witness, and John the Baptist's witness was the first witness about the character and the nature of He came into the courtroom of the world and declared who Jesus is. He declared Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He declared that Jesus is the one who comes to baptize with the Spirit, though I'm just baptizing with water. Well, this morning, as we conclude chapter 1, we're going to see day 2 and day 3 of Jesus' public ministry as he's inaugurated it here. And we're going to see how in this passage, Jesus calls his very first disciples, the very first followers. And this is one of the fascinating things about who follows Jesus and even the church today. There is great variety and great diversity among Jesus' followers. We don't all look the same. Aren't you thankful for that? We don't all think the same. We don't have the same gifts and abilities and talents and experiences and vocations. We are different. We have different ethnicities. We have different vocations. We have different life drives for us and callings. And when the Apostle Peter describes the church in his first epistle, notice how he metaphorically depicts the church. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house that building a house with stones is different than building a house with bricks. Bricks are all uniform, and it's relatively easy to put them together and to form this structure. Stones are much different because they're not the same. You've got some short, squishy stones, and you've got some tall, skinny stones. I won't say who's who in the room, but we have the different types of stones. And Peter says, you are like living stones. You're all unique, you're all different, you're all wired differently. But God is a God of creativity, and by His Spirit, He intricately builds together a spiritual house made up of living stones. I've entitled my message, Follow Me. Follow Me. As we continue studying this first week of Jesus' ministry, we will, in fact, see a glimpse of the diversity, yet the unity that Christ desires for His church. And we'll see in these followers even a microcosm of the church that Christ desires. In these first two paragraphs we'll look at today, Jesus calls the first five disciples who will follow after him the next three years and beyond. But I'll tell you a little bit about them. There's four of them We're named in the text. One is unnamed, and I'll let you know who I think that is. If you've had the occasion, and I hope you have, to watch the TV series called The Chosen which chronicles Jesus' life and the, the ministry he has with the disciples alongside him, no doubt you've noticed how the show depicts, I think really well, uh, the diversity among those first followers, their different attitudes, their different perspectives, their different dreams. It's quite fascinating to see. Now what this tells me is that, listen, everyone has a place in God's kingdom. Everyone has a place in the family of God, a role to fulfill. And just like these first disciples, all of us are called by the Lord. Follow me. Well, with these first disciples that are called, I think we see this picture of what following Jesus really should look like. What does genuine, authentic discipleship look like? This is the discipleship we see in microcosm in our text today that should be expanding across the globe. These t- two paragraphs in our text, uh, it's a long text, so we're, we're not going to read all of it up front, but I've got two points, two main points for my two paragraphs we see in the passage today. Here they, here they are. Number one, first thing I want us to see about discipleship is discipleship initiated. Discipleship initiated. In verses 35 through 42, Jesus initiates the calling Of the first disciples. Let's read it together. The next day again, so this is day two. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus is here. (laughs) He's here. And following Jesus begins right here. Discipleship with Jesus begins right here. And so I want us to see several things that mark authentic discipleship, authentic followership of Jesus. First of all, discipleship is ignited when we are shown him. True, authentic discipleship is ignited when we are shown him. Uh, John the Baptist, it's the next day after he had proclaimed loudly to the crowd gatherers, he sees Jesus coming towards him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the next day. He's just standing this time, not with a crowd, but with two of his disciples, and he repeats the same message just to them Behold, the Lamb of God. You know, many of us who have been around church for a long time, we grew up in church, we were drug the church. We've been in church a lot. You're starting to discover we're not saying a whole lot of new things. There's not a whole lot of new information that that we're bringing to the table week in and week out. John the Baptist was one of the greatest preachers in human history, but he preaches the same sermon on day 2. It's the same message. Behold the lamb. These two disciples who were with him had already heard this message. John the Baptist proclaims it. But when he says it, again, it's nothing new. It's the basic gospel. I want us to think about, what, again, what this message means. Behold, the Lamb of God. First of all, with this message, Jesus is focused on Christ. We can't miss this in the church today in 2022. Our central message is Jesus. Jesus. Our central message is the gospel of Christ. John's message was not focused on some philosophy. His message was not focused on a set of ethical standards. His message was not focused on a political perspective or agenda. His message was focused on a person, the person of Jesus Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God. We can see this same kind of zeroed-in focus in the Apostle Paul's ministry, as he's writing to the church of Corinth, the church he founded in that decadent city of Corinth, he says this and reminds them of his focused ministry in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.2. He says this, For I determined to know nothing, nothing? Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the Lamb of God. Friends, this is the message. This is what we preach. And I want to tell you, personally, as a preacher, I have to be reminded of this over and over and over again. Why? Because it's the tendency for preachers to get off message. It's our tendency. It's our tendency to think, well, we're actually political commentators. It's our tendency to think, I'm a social activist. It's our tendency to think, well, you know what? I'm really good at looking at the latest headlines and the the latest videos and the latest blog posts and the latest memes and develop a message out of that. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, does the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified have application to every headline and every meme, you better believe it does. But this is our message. John the Baptist's message is very simple. It focused on a person, but not only on the person, but what the person has done. The lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Just like Paul, Jesus Christ and him crucified. friends. True discipleship doesn't begin without this simple message. Discipleship is ignited and started when we are shown him. Here's the second thing about genuine discipleship. It begins when we seek him. It's ignited when we're shown him. It begins when we seek him. Again, verse 37, the two disciples heard him saying this, and they followed Jesus. You might want to circle those two words, followed Jesus. See, because here's the thing. Many people have heard the message. Many people have been shown him. And for some, it goes in one ear and right out the other. Many have heard the gospel message of Jesus Christ and him crucified, and they have agreed to the set of facts. They have agreed to the truthfulness of the message, about his identity, about his work, but yet they are not seeking Jesus. The genuine Christian is one who follows Jesus. These two disciples here, they pursued Jesus. They went after him. They sought him. In fact, consider this next truth. Followers of Jesus are necessarily those who follow after Jesus. Followers of Jesus are those who necessarily follow after Jesus. You aren't a follower of Jesus if you aren't following after Jesus. Followers follow. And you could say, duh, <laughs> but I wonder how many people we would go to in Chattanooga today. And we could ask the question, are you a Christian? And they would say affirmatively, yes. But then we get to press the subject a little bit more, and we come to discover there's no evidence of seeking Jesus, of pursuing Christ, of following after him, We begin to ask some diagnostic questions and there seems to be no desire, no urge to know Jesus, to submit to Him. What this means is if you're not following Him, you're not a follower. If you're not following after Christ, pursuing Christ, needing Christ, you're not a Christian. Now how do we know that these first two disciples who are following after Jesus are doing more than just walking behind him. (laughs) Is that discipleship? We know because of this next point. Discipleship, thirdly, flourishes when we stay with him. It flourishes when we stay with him. Look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Let me pause right here. This is the first words of Jesus recorded by his best friend John in John's gospel account. What are you seeking? And like a good teacher, he's asking a question. Good teachers ask good questions. And I think perhaps this question may be the most profound question in all of the Bible. What are you seeking? What are you looking for? What do you want? Jesus says, what are you seeking their answer to that question leads to flourishing discipleship. Notice how they answered. And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. And we pause there. Jesus has many things we've already seen. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's eternal. He has always existed. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the baptizer in the spirit who gives power to those who trust in him. But he's also the teacher. And so to come in discipleship under Jesus is to enter into that kind of relationship. He's the professor. You're the student. You're the learner. He's the teacher. And then notice what they ask. Where are you staying? This word stay is used three times in verse 38 and 39. The Greek word underneath it is most commonly translated in our English Bibles as abide. In fact, of all the New Testament writers, John uses this word for abide more than any of them. It's a theme in John's gospel, abiding with Christ, probably most famously known in John 15 when Jesus gives the metaphor of the relationship we have with him as the vine and the branches and he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Unless you abide in me and I in you, you won't bear much fruit. Abiding in Christ is a major subject and it's introduced right here. Where are you staying, Jesus? Where are you abiding? And Jesus gives, him, gives them his answer. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was abiding. And they abided with him that day for it was about the 10th hour a real authentic disciple is not one who's just made a decision but one who gets up and follows with the intention of abiding in relationship with Christ abiding with Jesus I'm afraid there's a little bit of misunderstanding about what discipleship is in the modern church I can remember growing up as a young Southern Baptist kid going to discipleship training. Anybody remember that? And even today, we can put forward this idea, and we kind of muddied the waters, we who are in the professional church world, that discipleship is a course. Discipleship is a class you complete. Discipleship is a book that you fill out all the blanks in. Discipleship is something you read, and it can include those things, but don't miss this. Discipleship is centrally and fundamentally an intimate love relationship with Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. It can help us get to there with these tools, but this is what we're pursuing. Abiding with Christ. Knowing Christ. It's not just what you know, but who you love. They came and they saw where he was abiding And they abided with him, they stayed with him that day. Genuine discipleship flourishes when we stay with him. But fourthly, notice that it multiplies when we share him. Discipleship multiplies when we share him. If you are a genuine disciple, it's contagious. You've got to tell somebody else. You've got to share it with someone. Someone. And we see this here in verse 40. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now only again, pause right here. Only one of these two disciples are named, Andrew. There's another one with him who remains unnamed. And scholars are relatively agreed, and I happen to believe this, that the other unnamed disciple here who now follows after Jesus and abides with him that night is none other than John who's writing this gospel. Because throughout his gospel, he remains the unnamed follower. In fact, one of the reasons we believe this is John is because he gives the exact time whenever they got together. He said it was about the 10th hour. That's about four o'clock in the afternoon. This following of Jesus was so indelibly printed on the mind of John that he forever remembered, oh, I remember what time it was. (laughs) It's four o'clock in the afternoon. Do you remember the moment for you? When you became aware, uniquely, keenly aware of Jesus? It's printed on his soul. Now, I also find it interesting that often when Andrew is listed in the scripture, he's always listed as the kid brother of Simon Peter. Now, personally, I have no idea what it's like to live under the shadow of your older brother. Must be tough. (laughs) but Andrew is really known not as Simon Peter's brother but primarily known as one who's always bringing people to Jesus he went and found his brother because he loved his brother and he brought him to Jesus later it's Andrew who brings the little boy with the little boy's lunch to Jesus and said can you do something with this we'll see Andrew's used here in a moment but the first person he brought to Jesus was Simon Peter notice how he did it Verse 41 He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He, Andrew, brought Peter, Simon Peter, to Jesus. Watch this. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. His brother was the first person he wanted to share Christ with. And after abiding with Jesus for that evening, Andrew said, I've come to recognize, I've come to understand this Jesus that we have stayed with. He is, in fact, the Messiah. This was a monumental discovery. The Messiah would be the deliverer of Israel. The Messiah would be the one that the people were longing for, they were yearning for, they were looking for. And so the next day, the first thing Andrew does is he goes and finds his friend and brother, Simon Peter, and he tells him, a true disciple shares Jesus with, with those who are closest to them. And here's what's fantastic again about this is that Jesus meets Simon and he says, "Uh, you're now gonna be known as Cephas. (laughs) You're gonna be known as Peter. I mean, imagine if somebody came up to me and I said, hey, my name's Troy. And they said, you shall no longer be called Troy. You should be called Hunter, which means hunter. That's what he does here. And Peter's just like, okay, that's my new name, (laughs) right? It's fantastic, fantastic. Most of you probably know the name Peter means rock, If you know anything about the personality of Peter as it's presented in the Bible, he's anything but a rock. He's impetuous, he's unthinking, he's impulsive. In fact, next week we'll be in Cana where Jesus performs his first public miracle, turning of water to wine. But many, myself included, think this is the first miracle, turning Simon into Peter. This is how discipleship is initiated. It's initiated whenever we are shown him when we seek him, when we stay with him, and then we share him. At least, to the second thing I want us to see from this second paragraph of Christ gathering disciples. Number two, discipleship increased. The number of disciples following Jesus continues to grow, continues to increase. The next day, it goes from three, John, Andrew, and Peter, to two more. Let's see how that happened. Verse 43, and reading on to the end of the chapter. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus found Andrew. Andrew went out and found his brother Simon Peter. Jesus goes to Bethsaida and finds Philip. Philip goes out and finds Nathaniel. This is the process of making disciples. The first disciples were made. Then they passed that responsibility of making disciples down to the next generation, to the next generation, for 2,000 years. And friends, it's landed upon us. We are now responsible to go and make disciples in the same form, in the same fashion. This is the central mission of the church. Go into all the world and make disciples. Well, from this paragraph, I want us to consider three fundamental truths about this central mission of the church, making disciples. First of all, we recognize Jesus is the ruler of the mission. Jesus is the one who drives this whole mission. He's the ruler of the mission. Again, verse 43 begins with these words, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. Jesus decided. It was his decision. It wasn't the three disciples who were with him, "Hey, you know, Rabbi, it might be good if we go to Galilee. We know some folks there." Oh, no, Jesus decided all through Jesus' ministry, you see it is him deciding when and where they will go. How long they will wait to get there. How long they will stay there. Jesus is the ruler of the mission. And what's interesting is, as he decides to go places, we're going on the other side of the river, of the lake. He knows full well there is a magnificent storm that's going to kick up when they're on the, the water. But he goes across anyway. We're going to go to the land of the Samaritans, knowing full where, well as soon as they get there, there's going to be a gathering demoniac filled with a legion of demons to greet them. He knows full well when he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. We're headed now to Jerusalem. He knows that in Jerusalem are some jealous religious leaders that are going to hand him over to Pilate and he will be crucified on a Roman cross. Jesus leads us, but that does not necessarily mean when he decides for us to go here that it's going to be a bed of roses. There may be difficulties. There may be hardships. Often the destination was unpleasant. Jesus is the ruler of the mission. So he decides to go to Galilee. Galilee is a very poor region of Judea. It's it's a poor part of Israel. It's a place where many different types of people come, It stands as a crossroad to several trade routes and as such it became a landing place for diverse types of people. Diverse languages, diverse religions, diverse ethnicity. And Jesus intentionally takes them to Galilee. Not to the ivory halls of academia in Jerusalem, no, to the impoverished streets of Galilee. And notice how the text put it in verse 43. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. We can't miss this in our own faith journey. Ultimately, it was Jesus who found us. Jesus who pursued us. Jesus who called us. And what we'll find out later in this study through the Gospel of John is that Philip is one who had a particular interest or heart for Greeks, non-Jews. In fact, notice John 12. We'll see where Philip brings some Greeks to Jesus. John 12, verse 20 and 22 through 22 says this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, you don't typically ask as a Greek to go talk to a Jewish rabbi. So who does Philip go to? Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Isn't that absolutely beautiful? Philip is used to bring a diversity of people to the Lord. The church of Jesus Christ is intended to be made up of a diverse group of people. Listen, the church of Jesus Christ is not an Israeli institution. And don't miss this. The church of Jesus Christ is not an American institution. The church of Jesus Christ is a heavenly institution, which means it's made up of a diverse group of people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people group. Philip recognized this and he sought to bring people to Jesus, people who customarily wouldn't be allowed to associate with such a rabbi. Now there's a couple things I want us to see about, about Philip bringing people to Jesus. First, his methodology, and secondly, his message. Notice Philip's method in verse 44. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Peter Philip found Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel. Jesus' method was one-on-one. Philip's method was one-on-one. He was found by one he went out and found one. This is the meth- primary method. One on one. Now think about this. When I look on the screen, this is a picture of McKenzie Arena. It's the biggest arena in Chattanooga, and here it is set up for the most competitive wrestling Division I wrestling tournament in the country, the Southern Scuffle, which I've worked everyone. I hear they play other sports in there, but I'm not sure about it. So... Um, <laughs> This is McKinsey Arena. Seats just under 11,000. Let's round it up to 11,000. Think about this. If we held an evangelistic crusade in McKinsey Arena with 11,000 people, and consider that every single one of those 11,000 people were not Christian, were unbelievers, and after that evangelistic crusade, every single one of those 11,000 people gave their lives to Jesus, Day two, we do another crusade with another 11,000 people, all of them unbelievers, and every single one of them gave their lives to Jesus. If we held an evangelistic crusade with 11,000 people every day, 365 days a year, for 50 years, we would never reach all of the unbelievers in this country. Here's another plan. Let's say I, as a single Christian, go to one other person share the gospel, and they trust Jesus. And I just simply say, we found him. (laughs) And then year two, both of us go and do the same thing. You go from two to four. Year three, you go from four to eight. If you extrapolate that out, you reach every unbeliever in the United States in 18 years. It's not about opportunity. It's about obedience to the call. And here's the other thing. We're not starting with one person. We're not starting with 150 adults in this room today. We're starting with millions of Christians in the United States of America who could in a week reach all of the unbelievers if we were simply obedient to take the gospel one-on-one to those who don't know Christ. This is the method. One-on-one. But what is his message? (laughs) Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him. <laughs> we have found him. Now we know from the text it was Jesus who found Philip, but Philip relates to him, we found him. There's something exciting about that. Philip is carrying here in his language a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. That I think this may be why the American church is so anemic. We've lost our sense of wonder in Jesus in his person, in his beauty, in his magnificence? Why are Christians so distracted with all of these tertiary issues that have little to no eternal significance because we've lost the excitement and the wonder of knowing Jesus? This is the Jesus method, one-on-one, and this is the message. We found him. True story, long, long time ago, very far away, my wife and I had our very first date. Very first date, 33 years ago. And when I dropped her off at the house, at her parents' house, she walked inside and her mom was waiting up for her. And her mom said, well, how did it go? And when he said, I found him. That's true, she said that. I'm gonna marry him. And her mom said, did you guys talk about that on the first date? And she said, oh, he doesn't know yet. To an infinitely greater degree. So infinitely greater. Philip says to Nathaniel, I found him. I found him. Who did he find? Look, What was Philip's message? We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We know the adopted son of Joseph. Now, here's the interesting thing. Of all the things Nathanael could have picked up on, of all the things he could zero in on, he zeroes in on Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Nathanael's demonstrating here a little bit of cynicism, a little bit of skepticism. What does he say? Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) Nazareth is nothing like what it is today, which is a major metropolis. Then it was a podunk, backwater town. And Nathaniel's a good Bible student. He knows there's not a single prophecy in all of the Old Testament that talks about Messiah coming from Nazareth. Little did he know Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, which was the fulfillment of prophecy. So he's a little cynical here. He's a bit of a skeptic. And in Philip, we see exactly how we are to respond to the skeptics. We don't respond to the skeptics with a long defense or apologetic. What did he, how did he respond to the skeptic? Three words. In fact, just a little aside. Three words can be transformational in your life. All kinds of three-word statements. I learned three words whenever I got, Amy and I got married. I am sorry. I say that many times. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I forgive you. I love you. Yesterday, I said three words to a brother that I've never said them to him before, and we've been great friends for 15 years. I looked at him in a time of loss, and I just said, I love you. Three words have power. But what are the three words that Philip said to Nathaniel? Come and see. Not an apologetic for the skeptic. He just said, come check him out for yourself. <laughs> Just come and investigate him. Come and see. This is the invitation we provide. We're just inviting people to come and see, to come check Jesus out. Why? Because Jesus is the central reality of the mission. And discipleship is increased under the Lord's design and under the Lord's direction when first of all we recognize Jesus is the ruler of the mission Number two, Jesus is the central reality of the mission. Here's the third thing. Jesus is the reward of the mission. Jesus is the reward. And this reward that we know should inspire us, should motivate us, it should comfort us as we seek to be witnesses for Christ. Because here's the deal. Being a witness for Christ in this messed up, broken, confused world can be difficult. It carries with it a level of risk. There's risk of relationship. There's risk of reputation. There's risk of disappointments. And sometimes there's even risk of danger. How is Jesus our reward? A couple ways I want us to see from the text. The first reward is that when we come to know Jesus, we come to realize we're truly known by him. When we come to know Jesus, we come to realize we are truly known by him. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, Jesus is using a little play on words here. Who is Israel in the Old Testament? What is he originally named? Jacob. What does the name Jacob mean? Deceiver. Jesus says, Behold, a Jacobite. (laughs) a descendant of the deceiver, in whom there is no deceit. Wow. <laughs> and what does Nathaniel say? Verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? <laughs> how do you know me? This week I was uh, filling up gas at the cheapest place in town I could find. But yet still my anxiety and sorrow were growing as the gas meter just kept rising and rising and my anxiety was interrupted by a gentleman on the other side of that pump and he said hey it is you you're the pastor at Lookout Valley Baptist Church I looked around and said how do you know me (laughs) right I didn't know him Nathaniel didn't know Jesus they'd never met before but Jesus just makes a statement hey here's a Jacobite descendant of the deceiver in whom there is no deceit and Nathaniel says how do you know me how do you know me? Jesus answered him, uh, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus is revealing here, even in his human existence, the God trait of omniscience. Nathanael's never met him, he's never seen him, but something about him Philip being, excuse me, Nathaniel being under that fig tree triggered a response in his heart. Now, I like to use my sanctified imagination and try to think about what was going on under that fig tree. Maybe Nathaniel was praying to Yahweh, Yahweh, would you send your deliverer? We have suffered long enough. And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Maybe he was confessing personal sin. Lord, I'm so sorry broken your commands again. Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. Maybe he was grieving a deep loss, maybe a loss of friendship and relationship that was painful. And the one who binds up the brokenhearted says, I saw you under the fig tree. Just that simple statement from the Lord, I saw you under the fig tree, elicited from Nathaniel, magnificent praise. He says in verse 39, 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Don't you want to go find Nathaniel in heaven and ask him what was going on under that fig tree that responded this way? He was certain the reward of the mission is we come to know Jesus and be known by Jesus. But the reward of Jesus is not just being intimately known by him. It's much greater than that. It's much more significant than that. We come to know Jesus as his disciples, him as the ruler of the universe. Our reward is that we get to reign with him forever and ever. Jesus alludes to that in verse 50 and following. Jesus' response to Nathan's worship, I think, is Nathaniel, is basically this. Nate, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's what he says in verse 50. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is no doubt a prediction of what the miraculous things Nathanael and the other disciples would see over the next three years of following Jesus and His ministry throughout Galilee. But this is also an eschatological prediction. This is a future prediction. This is a prophetic prediction of the new heavens and the new earth. And the promise that Jesus is making to Him is the same promise He makes to us. You will see Me in glory. And you will share in that glory I want you to think about it. All the people you are leading to Christ will see Him in that glory. As the Wallaces dedicated their lives to grow their children up in the truth of the gospel, they will see their children around the throne. As the ministry of this church goes out to the neighborhood and to the nations, we will see people, many of whom we've not met, but because of the giving and the faithfulness of this church, who will be there. And sure enough, a few years later, after John wrote this gospel account, he wrote another book. It's called The Apocalypse or The Revelation. And John got some glimpses into that future glory. Did he ever. In Revelation 4, heaven is opened up to John. And what does he see? He sees magnificent angelic beings flying around Jesus. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come. You go to chapter 5. John, the heavens are opened up to him again. And he sees this. Actually, in chapter 4, he sees 24 elders fall down before the throne. And they declare, worthy are you, Our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Again, chapter 5, he sees myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, this throng gathered around the throne. And what does he hear them say? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You fast forward. We could be here all day. Fast forward to chapter 19. You get to chapter 19, what does John see? He says, Then I saw... Heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. You go into chapter 20, what does he see? The devil is fully and finally defeated and thrown into the lake of fire forever, never to torment again. You go into chapter 21, what does he see? He sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and God says this is where God's going to dwell with men. But the last chapter of the last book of the Bible begins with this vision. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Who's that? Say it again. Who's that? Jesus. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. Stop right there. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine will not be solved with diplomacy. It will not be solved with intense sanctions. It will not be solved with the marching of war. The healing of the nations only comes when Jesus sits on the throne and is Lord of all nations forever and for always. And this is the Jesus we serve. This is the reward of the mission. He continues, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Tattoos, here we go. Verse 5 And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus says to Nathanael, you believe because I let out a little the glory of God I have because I showed you my admissions. I saw you under the fig tree. Nate, you ain't seen nothing yet. And follower of Jesus, no matter how downtrodden you feel, no matter how crushed your spirit may be right now, no matter how debilitated your body may be, matter how hurt you are from broken relationships the reward is jesus and christian you ain't seen nothing yet you ain't seen nothing yet and that leads to my last thought jesus is calling you to follow him what will you do